0: their leaders. So thank you, children. In tonight's, uh, service we'll be at, uh, 6 p.m. tonight's service, we'll be looking at 6pm tonight's service, we'll be looking at Buddhism uh, and the impact that uh, this religion has had on our world and in our civilization, Western civilization in particular. You wouldn't think so, but it's quite, uh, quite out there. So um, if you would like to you know, just look at that a little bit closer tonight, we'll be looking at uh, at that so, at 6pm tonight. Alright, so this morning we're looking at, uh, we're following our series in the Gospel of John. We finished up in chapter 1. Jesus, the incarnate word, word of God. We looked at John the Baptist and the handover from John the Baptist to Jesus, that transition, and then the calling of The first disciples. So we now move to Jesus' ministry in chapter 2 and we're looking at the wedding at Cana. We're going to look at four aspects of the wedding at Cana which was Jesus' first miracle and the first sign that the kingdom of God was indeed here in the person of Jesus Christ. First, we're going to look at his presence from verses 1 and 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. It's good when people turn up to a wedding. Invited guests and everybody else, because wedding is one of those times that You really want to celebrate life and joy and everybody is happy and joyful. It's a celebration. It's great to have guests, but how wonderful it would have been to have Jesus there, personally, physically there at your wedding. That would have been a marvellous thing. Jesus and his disciples, along with his earthly family were guests at this wedding in Cana of Galilee. Today it is mainly an, an Arab town and on our way to Nazareth we actually passed uh, the, the town of of Cana, just west of the situated just west of the Sea of Galilee and uh, only about six kilometres north of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. Now, in a, in a village life of Galilee, a wedding brought celebration into an otherwise, I don't know, maybe even drab existence. Weddings were a big deal in Jewish culture. It's a big deal for the whole community, not just the village, but the villages around and everybody just comes for the feed. In our culture, the bride is the main attraction. In Eastern weddings, sorry ladies, but the groom is the centre of attention. The bride merely has to turn up. The wedding festivities didn't last just for seven hours. They went on for seven days. And the host invited as many people as possible, distinguished guests, prominent teachers, to come to be part of the celebration. The wedding ceremony would take place late in the evening after a time of feasting. The bridegroom and his men, the groomsmen, they made a gala They would make a gala procession through the streets, To fetch the bride's party by torchlight. Then everyone went to the groom's house for the actual wedding ceremony. This was followed by a party to end all parties. There would be dancing down the streets, in the courtyard, people dressed in their finest clothes. There was music, there was laughter. There were tables filled with food. This would be the time to kill the fattened calf. There will be jugs of wine. In every sense of the word, the wedding was a time of high joy. In all of this, in all of this, I cannot imagine Jesus sitting in a corner with his arms folded Feeling sorry for himself and complaining about the dancing, the music, just too loud, can't handle all this happiness and joy. I think Jesus would have joined in, he would have celebrated the occasion. People actually like to hang around Jesus. I don't know if you picked that up in the Gospels or not. They wanted to be around him. Spirit of thought, however, for some of Jesus' disciples who had just come across from John the Baptist to Jesus. What was going through their minds? After all, John the Baptist was more your uh, conservative Baptist, let's call him. He was more of a, you know, the loner, more the ascetic. He was, John the Baptist, I can't picture him being a party goer. I'm not making this stuff up. Matthew 11, verses 18 to 19. These verses are here for a reason. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's quite a difference in the contrast between one ministry and the other, isn't there? And I know as Christians, we struggle a little bit with this. I say, hang on, what are you saying? Well, let me move on and you'll get the picture. What would Jesus say to us? Jesus would be saying to us, my first miracle took place at a wedding. I was there. And I still like to turn up to weddings and celebrations, especially when people ask for my presence and my blessing in their life not just in their wedding, but in their marriage, and their family that has been formed. My first miracle took place at a wedding, not at a funeral, in a home, not in a temple. Please invite me into your relationships, into your families, into your homes. I value social interaction and friendships. I have sanctified marriage by my presence. Don't compartmentalise me by thinking of me only when you're in serious trouble. After you've been to the hospital or the doctor or when you lost your job or about to take you home and all of that type of stuff. Don't just call on me when you're in trouble. Call on me always. Let me walk with you. In tears, in pain, and in joy, and in happiness. In all aspects, in all transitions in your life, I want to be there with you. The kingdom that I brought is a kingdom of celebration. How can you you miss the celebration of the kingdom in the parables that Jesus spoke of? It's all there. What else is this passage about? It's about his priority, verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. It is interesting to see the way that Jesus related to his earthly family. And, and uh, I, I think there's been a lot of speculation here of what it was like to live with, with Jesus, God, man, in the flesh there for the first 30 years of his life. And then when he started his ministry, it, it, could never, it was never going to be easy to live with divinity within your household. Then Jesus, knowing that he came to earth for a specific mission, for a specific purpose, for a higher purpose, they will inevit- that, that will inevitably bring a cutting off the cords, a, a, a cutting off the physical ties that will prove painful and will be hard to accept. We have that tension in the Gospels. So while Jesus is at this reception, his mother, who might have been there, could have been family friends. They, she might have been part of the, the crew who was helping with the banquet and the organisation and the food and everything else, came up to him and reported that there was big trouble. Big problem. They were out of wine. Um, a lot of the places that we visited in, around Israel and the Holy yeah. Land, a lot of the places they had the wine press, basically uh, because there 's a lot of rock, a lot of stone around, they used to just chip away and make it into the place where you step on the grapes and the, 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 the wine would flow and all of that it was it was part of it was part of the life in Palestine, but as you, as you probably know, wine takes a while to ferment and to be from the moment that you crush the grapes and all of that to fermentation it takes a while you couldn 't just go to I don't know, liquor store or whatever and, and get your fill for, for, the, uh, for the celebration. It was quite an inconvenience for them. They ran out, they had more people. It tends to happen in these village uh, weddings. Uh, many, many years ago uh, in do Iguaçu, in, um, in Brazil, right on the border with Paraguay, I was about 15 at the time, 14, 15 there was a wedding, so we, we had the wedding at, at the church. A lot of people, and after the wedding at the church, everyone, everyone was invited to the, the groom's home, where they a whole cow. They killed a whole cow, and they cooked it. They were barbecuing it in the, in the ground. They dug a pit, and they were cooking it in, in the ground. Whole cow, right? So, because they're catering for a lot of people. But by the time the people had left the church and gone to the house, the cow had gone. The whole village had turned up and cleaned up. There was no food left. Here the situation is, you can imagine after a few days, the wine had run out. from what we know of Jesus' life and purpose and his priorities, this was more of an inconvenience rather than emergency. From the types of miracles that Jesus would do, from healing lepers, calling friends from the tomb and the grave, Lazarus, come out. Turning, you know, lack of wine, it, it, it doesn't really hit the order of priorities and, and the, you know, the real big needs of humanity at this stage. It, and it, and It's way down the list of priorities. It's no wine, big deal. So he gives an interesting response after Mary... Comes to him and says, "They have no more wine." Dear woman, why do you involve me? Um, It's. (laughs) I think our kids might have given a similar response when we've asked them to do something. Um, Get Jeremy to do it. Get somebody else. Why? Why are you calling me? Why do you, you know, why are you calling me? Um, and maybe none of my kids would have responded the same way that Jesus responded. You know, I can't imagine Jeremy ever saying, "My time has not yet come." <laughs> now, they might say that. If you wake them up at six thirty in the morning to mow the lawn, and they say my time has not yet come, but this is this is a big statement here, and and Jesus doesn't say leave me alone. He he uses the term woman uh, that was respectful. He's not being rude to his mum, but he says. In, in, It's it's that instance when the the cord is slowly being cut, isn't it? Because of his higher priority. She would come, yes, Mary, there would come a time when Mary would see him as a saviour. But at the moment he's, in this period of transition, she's struggling. So by calling her dear woman, he's not establishing, uh, he's not totally breaking The cords, but he's establishing some polite distance from his earthly mother. Gentle hint. And uh, his response to Mary, I think, goes against the Catholic Church's teaching that prayers rendered to Mary are a way of smoothing things over with Jesus, because after all, Mary is supposed to be Jesus' mother, so if you, if, before you go to Jesus asking for a favour or a miracle or a prayer uh, a request, then you go to his mother and then the mother will bring it to Jesus. That's sort of the, the understanding within Catholic theology of how it works. Us evangelicals and Protestants, we just go straight to Jesus for obvious reasons because that's what the Bible says. And when Jesus speaks of his time, he's not talking about a time of the day. He's talking about the cross. That time. Once he starts doing miracles, he will begin the road to Calvary. Crowds would flock to him with their needs. Just like the religious investigators came to investigate in chapter 1, the ministry of John the Baptist, and they started questioning him to take a report back to Jerusalem. Religious investigators would follow Jesus now and he would have to answer. The clock would start ticking. But in all of this, he was now living according to a a different timeline, a heavenly timetable. And when Jesus senses that his time was right, he would act. Not before. Now I love Mary's reaction in verse 5 as she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Maybe feeling a little rebuked, she somehow knew that Jesus would take care of the problem of the situation and and gave the servants servants a heads up so that they would listen to Jesus' instructions. I think this is good advice that comes from Mary. One of the most important declarations In scripture, right here. For all of life, what is it? It's this, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. I don't think there's better advice than that, is there? That has to be a priority in our lives. So what would Jesus be saying to us? What could he be saying to us? If you want your life to get back on track, my kingdom has to be your top priority. Seek it first, seek it always, and everything else will fall into place. So therefore, you need to do whatever I tell you to do if you want to get your life in order priority. What else is this passage about? It's about his power to transform, verses 6 to 9. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw out and take it out to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into one. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. What is the kingdom of God about? It's, the kingdom of God is a very big subject in the Gospels. But one of the key aspects of the kingdom of God is about the power of transformation. Jesus really came to transform, to transform people. It was, in Judaism, it was very important for the Jews to be ceremonially clean. There were 20 to 30 gallon water jars who, by this stage, because of the stage of the wedding, they were mostly empty because each guest would have come in and as they before they went into the, the celebration of the wedding they were given water to wash their feet and their hands as they arrived. It was more than just cleaning the, the, the dust or washing their hands or whatever. Uh, it's a ceremonial act. Um, one of the places that we were staying close to the, the Dead Sea in this hotel there was also a huge Jewish celebration. Jews from all over the world were actually coming for this particular event. And sure enough, we wandered down to the lobby and and there were some ceremonial uh, basins where people were actually washing their hands and all that before they took part in, in the in the reception. It still goes on today. From the way that John writes we can see that the jars represents the Old Testament law and its inability to make a person truly clean the Old Testament law is, is like a mirror oh you got a spot there Oh, that's dirty, isn't it? That's what the law does. It points all your faults. Oh, where did that wrinkle come from? It wasn't there yesterday? Oh, yes, it was. It's just getting gradual, you know, fading glory. Why don't I like to look in the mirror? The white starts to take over. So the Old Testament law points all our faults, and but it does not clean, it is not a dishwasher, it is not a washing machine, it does not do any of that. It could never do that, but he pointed to the one who could. That's what we sing about being washed in the blood. Only Jesus could do that. So these jars represents the Old Testament. And it's inability to make a person truly clean. You can go and wash your hands with the jars as much as you want, but it's never going to finish the job. It's never going to do it. But Jesus transforms their content. He fills the jars with his new wine, right up to the brim. If the jars are filled right up to the brim with water, it means that it was impossible for it to be diluted nothing else could be brought inside because it would just spill over. If it was filled up to the brim, there was only room enough for water. And That's important detail. The Old Testament law was made alive with the new wine of the new covenant that Jesus came to bring. This is also a preview of the Last Supper when Jesus... Does not transform water into wine, but the wine came to forever represent his blood that was poured on Calvary for us. Jesus always finds a way of taking the ordinary and making it extraordinary. Transformation. The servants are told to fill the jars with water. In verse 7 they didn't question Jesus by saying "Um, I don't know I don't know who you are, Um, you're a guest obviously here but we've just been notified that we need wine, we don't need extra water, okay? No, they didn't question that. They didn't start throwing arguments and excuses. They immediately obeyed What Mary had told them, do what he tells you to do and filled it to the brim. They were full to the top. There was no room for anything else. And they then told him, verse 8, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Now the master of the banquet is the the event organiser. Could have been the MC the guy who was in charge of everything, making sure that the whole thing happened correctly, every aspect of this celebration. Here is an important principle that I've, I've spoken about before, but nevertheless, it's good to remind ourselves of this. There is an important principle that uh, Bill Hybels from Willow Creek in the US calls a faith along the way. Faith along the way. What is faith along the way? It is the faith that the ten lepers had when Jesus told them to go and present themselves before the priest. Remember that? And as they went, in obedience to Jesus' words, to present themselves they left sick, but as they travelled, as they moved along the way, somewhere between here and there, they were healed. It is the act of faith that the priests had as they were carrying the ark about to cross the Jordan River back into the Promised Land. But first they had to start walking and as their garments touched the water, the water stopped flowing. That's faith along the way. And everybody else crossed on dry land. This is the faith that the the, the servants had as they took what was water, what started off as water here, but by the time it is presented to the master of the, the wedding, It is transformed. Not before. If they had simply just stayed there and complained about, no, they need wine, they don't need water, nothing would have happened. It takes obedience. It's the obedience that allows God's transformation to occur. Now, God can do anything He wants, but He's using the act of obedience as a way of trust and say, well, you have faith in me, now I'm going to start doing something. Don't just sit and wait. Because if you sit and wait, it's not going to happen. I'm I'm asking you to move. Move in the direction that I told you to move originally. And somewhere between here and there, I'm going to act. Faith requires, you see, that we walk in the direction of obedience to God. And then God acts along the way. But we have to trust that he is acting and he will act according to his glory according to his purposes and the water wasn't just cordial it just didn't appear to be wine it was transformed into wine not just any wine the best of wine, at that. It wasn't grape juice. I know we're going to get into theological issues here, and blah blah blah. The Southern Baptists, don't get stuck into that. It was wine, okay? Can, can we accept that? It was wine. It was the best of the best of the wines, a process that takes weeks and months to turn into something great happened instantly how is that possible our God you see is in the transformation business the world is always telling us to get a a new hairdo a new makeover a new wardrobe so that next time we look at the mirror oh wonderful look at that liposuction it worked Society wants us to get a, you know, that marriage doesn't work, move on to the next one or the next one after that. New wives, new kids, new jobs, I don't know, new skills. But Jesus doesn't want to change your looks. He wants to change your heart. He doesn't want to just give you a new Armani suit. He wants to make you a new person. He doesn't want to rearrange you. He wants to transform you. You want to look better on the outside. He wants to make you new on the inside. You want to look good for this fleshly life, this carnal life that is limited, has a use by date. He is already preparing you for eternity. His vision of you, for you, is much, much longer than what you ever dreamed of. It's not limited to this stuff here. There's a, there's a saying that goes like this, nature forms us, sin deforms us, school informs us, but only Christ transforms us. What would Jesus say to us? Well, he would say, give me the ordinary and let me do it, let me make it extraordinary. Put your faith in me just like the disciples did and when you do, I'll transform your life from the inside out. And lastly, we look at his provision, verses 9 and 10. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And when he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everything, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. You're gonna feel sorry for the for the young married couple because uh, after they got they got married, the ceremony, the the, the couple. Were the hosts, they were part of the hosts as well. They, they had to host this week long open house, people coming and going, this massive celebration. They couldn't just go for the honeymoon to the Mediterranean, had to wait. And it was the groom's family who was expected to provide all the food, the refreshments for this lengthy party. And yes, to run out of wine, was a real problem. And guests constantly arrived and they would consume the food and the drink and so on and so forth. To run out of wine was embarrassing. To the Jewish people, wine, you see, symbolised joy. The rabbis had a saying that went like this, without wine there is no joy. So when the fruit of the vine ran out, the delight dried up. It's interesting that Jesus is not called upon until the resources ran dry. It is only then and not before that he performs the miracle. It's not as if, you know, the, the amount of wine is just, looks like we're going to run out of wine. You know, it's about half empty, so it's not going to last us for the next two or three days. No, it actually ran dry. There was nothing left. It's part of human nature, isn't it, that uh, it is only when we come to the end of our supply, to the end of our wits, that we're actually able to receive what Jesus has to give. There's a lesson in that, isn't there? Meanwhile, we, we try and fix things our way and then when we have nothing else and the supply runs out, nothing more, then we cry out and it's then that we recognise that God can do it. And when the banquet manager tasted the water that had been turning to wine, he is shocked. Calls the groom over, says everyone brings out the good stuff at the beginning because then the, the palate is, is quite sensitive to the taste and they know what they're drinking, all of this, and they can say, oh, this is fine wine, you know. Yes, yeah, we're into this and all of that, you know, all that discussion, that goes on and then you bring out the cheap stuff after they've been desensitized somewhat but you have saved the best till now. Saving the best till last is an important lesson. You see at the beginning of any venture it is normal for people to give it all because there is enthusiasm, there is passion, there is high energy, there is all those, those dreams that are going to come real, so there's, there's all this stuff at the beginning of anything. It's, we're all enthused about it all. But then as time goes on, it starts to wear out, the energy level starts to go down. This job is not as good as when I started 10 years ago, and so on and so forth. But for us, as the children of God, remember, it is not so much how you start anything, whether it's a ministry or whatever it is, it's how you finish. For the faithful child of God, there is this wonderful promise that for you, for the child of God, for us, the best is yet to come, always, The best is yet to come. That is our hope. God will give us little fillings here and there, but he's going to save the best to last. Simply read Revelations. But in some stages of our life, he will step in and fill our lives and and give extravagantly more than what we need just to let us know that where that came from there's a lot more that you're going to have one day. There were six jars containing about 100 litres each. 100 litres. We're talking 600 litres here. It's hard to imagine that they would have needed that much wine it's hard to imagine. Why did Jesus do that? Couldn't he say, guys, no, nah, we can't have that. We can't have people. We're risking people getting drunk here. So we're not going to, you know, just have a little bit. It will go around. And I want to make sure that everybody, you know, before they leave the place, that they we test the, you know, the alcohol level and all of that. So you don't get on your horse or your cart. You don't walk on the street. It was a different time. Understand that. But surely, if Jesus was a Southern Baptist, he would have said, no. Look, 50 litres is more than enough. Okay? 600 litres! Why does he do that? Because our God is an extravagant giver. He multiplies five loaves and two fishes so that 5,000 men and then the women and the children could be fed. There were 12 baskets left over. He instructs his disciples who just want to have enough fish for a decent meal. He tells them, throw the net on the other side. Just throw it out. Okay? They do. And, they, and their nets almost rip open because of that many fish that they caught. They just wanted a couple. And they get a whole boatload. I'm not making this stuff up proverbs 3 9 to 10 honor the Lord with your wealth with the first fruits of all your crops then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine God is extravagant giver and the passage we read this is where it becomes personal the apostle Paul experienced this kind of extravagant grace when he said in 1 Timothy one 13 to 13-14 even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And this is the bit he says the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. Not just in dribs and drabs but abundantly along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Why was Paul so transformed? Why was he willing? Why was he singing in prison? Why was he willing to die for Jesus? Because there was so much love that he could give and share now because God's love was overflowing in his life. God doesn't give extravagantly to us just for our personal benefit so we can start a a business selling fantastic wine. He wants it for us to give it freely. His infilling is so that we could be a blessing to others, that our lives overflow with his love with the aroma of Christ so that it fills the place, so that it transforms. Jesus is in the transformation business. He who performed this miracle, turning water into wine, is the same Jesus that we serve, the same Jesus that we worship this morning. Allow Jesus, who really knows how to celebrate, who really knows how to provide for every need, for him to transform your life and mine. And may our lives be giving glory to him and overflowing with the joy that can only come from God. Amen. Let us sing.